Well, it's Advent, and each time this year, if we read the biblical stories, it, it challenges our assumptions about reality. If we at least take them seriously, it challenges our view of what is the universe, what is reality. And certain words just stick out to us that we either just ignore and move on, or we have to really think, now, do I have a view of reality that is true? And I'm not talking about just the virgin giving birth to Jesus. To me, that is not so hard to accept. If you believe in a creator of this entire universe, you know, quantum physics, all that jazz, it's not at all a problem to think that he's going to create a baby in a womb uh, without a man. That's like whoop-de-doo, no big deal. To me, the stranger parts are, what do you do with all these appearances of angels in all the narratives around the birth of Jesus? Now, to many, uh, the, the, the angels appearing kind of makes the Christmas story magical. You know, kind of a little bit like, you know, Santa and the elves or something. It, it sort of makes it magical. But when you read the entire Bible and get the entire Bible's bigger story, you realize, no, the, the angel parts are actually the main story of the Bible. They're not just there to make one story magical. They are the story. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Let's just pick up where often the Christmas story that's read in Christmas pageants all throughout the country or church services begins, and that's Luke 126. It says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, it's interesting. He gives a, a name of an angel. Like, so, okay, I, angel appears in the story, but the angel has a name? And people who understood back then their Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, would have recognized right away that this is the same angel, because he's named there too. This is the same angel that appeared to the prophet Daniel 500 years before this, over 500 years before this, and you read about it in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 8, this angel Gabriel, named there specifically, appears and tells Daniel what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to die. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. And it says that when Daniel saw Gabriel, he was terrified and he fell to the ground. He was so afraid and Gabriel had to pick him up and, and lift him up. And so then we find out at the beginning of Luke chapter one, the story before this story, Gabriel, the angel, appears to Zechariah, whose son is gonna become John the Baptist, who's gonna prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord being Jesus. And now here he's appearing to Mary. And it seems like Gabriel kind of has one job at least as it appears in the Bible, and that is to, in some way, announce the coming of the Messiah at each kind of step of the way. But as we, as we think about this story, we know who Gabriel is. He's, he's Gabriel that appeared to all these people, but what is Gabriel? Well, okay, you say he's an angel, duh. Okay, well, what is an angel? What, what should come to our mind when we think of Gabriel as an angel? And, and how much should that affect our view of reality? How real are angels 
in our everyday reality. One thing we should not do is accept the cultural picture of angels. So this is back in the Renaissance, Raphael, a painter, a famous painter. This was his picture, painting, of angels. Well, I can promise you, the more you think of that, the less you're gonna think of reality. Angels aren't troubled toddlers and, and all that kind of thing. This says like the opposite of what you see when you read the biblical story. The biblical story is interesting because, well, in the first pages of the Bible, it says that, that human beings were special. Human beings were created to be image bearers of God. Human beings were created to bear God's image to everything else on earth. But as you read later in the Hebrew scriptures, later in the Old Testament, you realize they weren't the first to be created as image bearers of God. There's another whole class of beings that were created to bear God's image and represent God over creation. And God talks about it in several places. The Bible talks about it in several places, but God specifically brings it up in the Old Testament book of Job. Job is struggling with God because of the suffering in his life, the extent of the suffering in his life, the continuation of the suffering in his life, and he can't figure out how a good God would continue this kind of suffering in his life. So he's complaining before God as any of us would. God's answer is not so satisfying. God just says, I don't think you have a big enough picture of reality to really answer the question. You're just gonna have to trust me. And so God goes through a litany of things in the chapters of, of Job, like chapter 38. This is one of those things God says. In chapter 38, verse 4, he says to Job, okay, I'm just trying, it's almost like Columbo. Now, where were you there? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is poetry. So foundation of the earth is a poetic term. Where were you when I created the earth? When, when I created the earth, when the morning stars, and that's a, a, a phrase that's often used for spiritual beings in the Bible, in the Old Testament. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, those are spiritual beings also in the Old Testament, and they're sons of God in the sense that they too are image bearers of God, when all the sons of God shouted for joy. So whatever these sons of God, these morning stars, this class of beings are they are in the image of God and they were not just pre-human but pre-earth. And they witnessed God creating the earth. Now, the, the Bible's word for these beings is the word in Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word for these beings is the word Elohim. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard that word, Elohim. That's the word that gets translated in English, the Hebrew word that gets translated either as God or as gods, depending upon the context. So anything that inhabits the spiritual world, the spirit world, is called Elohim in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. So God is called Yahweh Elohim. And it gets translated in our Bibles as the Lord God. He's the ultimate spiritual being. He's the creator of everything that exists, all spiritual beings included. He's called Yahweh the Most High, the Most High Elohim, Elohim Most High. He's the source of all existence, the giver of all life. And so all other Elohim, 
spiritual beings are created by him, answer to him, uh, under him, infinitely so. But you have that word translated in the Old Testament as not just God, like I said, but also, like I said, gods. Gods. Now, when something's a god, not God, but gods, in the Hebrew scriptures, that's not a positive thing. But Elohim gets translated as gods, which shows us that something went wrong with the story. That these sons of God, these Elohim, these spiritual beings, something happened that now they're being called, at least many of them are being called, not all, are being called gods. Well, so what happened is, when God created human beings as his image bearers, these previous image bearers didn't like, a lot of them, didn't like the plan. And so when God, it says, created the earth and there's a place on earth called Eden, Eden is kind of this place between you have the spiritual realm and the throne of God. It's a place where God's presence, God's throne is on earth. It's, it's not the rest of the earth. It's a distinct place on earth that has very clear boundaries. And this place, Eden, is where God is, this is all, you know, how much of this is literal versus the symbolic, but God's throne is here. His presence is here. And there's a spiritual beings, a ruling assembly of spiritual beings also here. And it says in chapter two of Genesis that God created the man out here and he took the man and he put him in the garden. And so the man and the woman were in the garden to cultivate it. Their job was to spread it throughout the earth. And in that garden, there are also the spiritual beings, the Elohim. And one particular Elohim shows up in the story in the third page of the Bible, Genesis chapter three. This Elohim is referred to as a serpent. Now, a snake. That Hebrew word, the last time I'll say Hebrew word, I think, but that Hebrew word for snake is, is kind of like a triple entendre. It means snake, but also it means divination, the dark arts, occultic knowledge, and also it means a shining one. And so you kind of take all these three together and it's very symbolic, this snake. This snake is serpentine in his character. He is occultic with dark knowledge and he is a shining one. But here's the thing, he belongs, at the time at least in Genesis three, he belongs in Eden. It's not strange for him to be there. He's not out of bounds, he's not snuck in. He's there because he's already part of the ruling assembly of spiritual beings. That's what it says in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 38. He was there in the Garden of Eden and he was a, what's called a, a cherub or a cherub, part of the cherubim. He's part of the powerful angels, the powerful spiritual beings, we should say, that were at the presence of God and guarded the boundaries of Eden. And it says that he was adorned with incredible godlike glory and godlike beauty and that he was in Eden, but something happened where he was cast out of Eden. It says in Revelation chapter 12 that when he rebelled against the plan of God about these 
humans being the image of God, that he convinced a third of the other spiritual beings to rebel with him. A third is no doubt a symbolic number. He convinced a large number of spiritual beings to rebel with him and that they were all cast out of Eden as well. But when he's in Eden, at this point in Genesis 3, it's not strange for Eve to be talking to him. Because human beings and spiritual beings were part of the environment of Eden. They would talk to each other. And But this one has a dark purpose. This one has a bad intent, and that is to destroy humanity, destroy God's purpose for humanity. And the way he does that is to get them to question whether or not they can trust God's will. Well, they don't. They take things into their own hands. And so not only are the fallen Elohim expelled from Eden, but so are the fallen human beings, Adam and Eve, expelled from Eden. And then it goes on to say, then the generations after them become more and more violent. The generations after them become more and more corrupt. The generations after them, it says, only evil all the time is a phrase used. They just become obsessed with their own agenda and they worship the fallen Elohim as gods instead of worshiping Yahweh Elohim, the most high God, the true God. And so you have this verse, this chapter 32 of Deuteronomy verses eight and nine that say, because of that, God gave over all the nations to the Elohim to rule over the nations because they didn't want to worship God. They wanted to worship other gods. God gave them over to the other gods. And so you have this really strange, what that means is, is that the ancient gods of Egypt, the ancient gods of Babylon, the ancient gods of Persia, the Greek and Roman gods, they were real. They are real. The mythology is not real, although there might be shades of truth in the mythology. But they are consistent with what the Bible says, not because the Bible's polytheistic. There's only one true ultimate God that's worthy of worship, but there are other gods that steal worship. And that's the fallen Elohim. And it says they rule over the nations. So you have these fallen Elohim ruling over the nations. Babylonian gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, all the national identities of their gods. And so God says this really strange verse in Psalm 82, verse 1. It says this, it says, God has, Elohim, the, the most high God, has taken his place in the divine council. That's that ruling assembly of spiritual beings. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So the Bible doesn't say the gods are, don't exist. The Bible says, no, they're real. They're just false gods. They're false objects of worship. And so it says in verse four, or excuse me, verse five, God says the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. That's not saying they're not real. It just says they know nothing and they understand nothing. And they're quite real. Just like that verses in the Bible say, humans are blind, they know nothing, they understand nothing. Well, that's true of these fallen Elohim as well. They walk about in darkness. 
It says, all the foundations of the earth now are shaken. Why? Because the Elohim, the gods, are corrupt, and they spread their corruption on the earth, and so all the foundations of the earth are shaken. God says to them, I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. You were created to be sons, to be image bearers of the true God. You're like gods, but you've become imitators of God. You've become false. You've become corrupt. And so the foundations of the earth are shaken and you will die like mere mortals. You were created to live forever and now you're going to die like a man of dust. That's God's judgment that will come eventually on the fallen Elohim. This is the backstory. When you open up the gospel of Luke, you crease the page at chapter one and you start reading this is the backstory. This is why angels are appearing all over the place at the birth of Jesus, shouting in chapter two, glory to God in the highest and on earth is peace. On, on, God's bringing peace on earth and to people of goodwill because the birth of Jesus is a turning point in the story. The birth of Jesus, the birth of God who became human, the son of man and the true son of God is, is going to become again what a son of God is supposed to be. He's, the, he's God who became human. And in the story we find in the gospel of Luke, he takes on death itself. He takes on the Genesis 3 world. He takes on the corruption. He takes on the sin of the world upon his body. And he takes sin and death upon his body on the cross. And he takes it into the grave with him and he kills it. And he rises from the dead as a new creation to bring new creation to all those who are part of his new humanity and to ascend as the true son of God to reclaim the nations from the false gods, the fallen Elohim. Which is why the first thing Jesus does when he goes public in his ministry after he's baptized in Luke chapter four is he goes directly to confront the serpent who was in the, in the garden, now in the wilderness, the devil. And he doesn't challenge the devil when the devil says to him, all the kingdoms of the world have been given over to me. Jesus doesn't say, nah-uh. He just says, well, yeah, that's gonna change here real quick. You just don't know how. But worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But he doesn't challenge Satan's claim that all the kingdoms have been given to me, all the nations have been given to me, because it's biblically true. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he, he's going to reclaim the nations, which is why the very last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew are these. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. This all the nations becomes the scope now of the message of the gospel. This all the nations now can come back into the people of God is the message of the gospel. All ethnicities are now able to be part of this new humanity, which is why when Jesus appears to the apostle Paul and is described in Luke's second book, the book of Acts in chapter 26, verse 18, Jesus summarizes the whole gospel this way. He says, I'm sending you to the nations the nations that have been given over to the false Elohim that I've now reclaimed, I'm sending you to the nations. And says, he says this, exactly this, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan 
to God. That's how Jesus summarized the whole message of the gospel. He goes on to say that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who are made holy by faith in me. I don't know if you think of the gospel that way. I don't know if you think of the message of the gospel as turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan and unfallen Elohim, the false gods, to God, the true God, because Jesus has reclaimed them by his death and resurrection and his ascension. Now, you might be asking, okay, well, that's great. Why does he allow all this to continue to go? Why are the false gods, the fallen Elohim, still exercising their evil influence over the nations? I thought Jesus won the battle. Well, yeah, kind of already, but not yet. Why didn't he just remove them so that the the suffering and the injustice and the wars can all stop? All this, you know, we can't have nice things. It seems like there really are influences that we don't see, that every time peace breaks out, war breaks out right away. Every time justice seems to happen a little bit, those who bring the justice become just as corrupt. Every time we have good things, they become used for evil. We can't have nice things because always in the human condition, without exception, evil always comes and has a second word. It has an influence. Why does God allow it? Well, I don't have all the answers, but I have one that helps me, and it's a memory I have. When my son was a year old, we took him to get his immunizations. He's got his little tender leg there, and and the nurse puts a shot right in that, and when the nurse puts a shot in his tender little leg, my son looks at me like, what in the world? Why would you allow this pain And all of a sudden, you can see in his eyes, I thought I could trust you. I thought we had this thing going on where you were the good guy. Now, all of a sudden, you're the bad guy. And it was a moment in my life that was really hard. Well, because I couldn't explain to him. I couldn't possibly say, well, see, this is all because you could potentially get the real virus. And so this is going to, this toxin that we're putting into your body, this pain that we're giving you is so that your body can develop the ability to fight the real virus because you for sure don't want the real virus. The pain is way better. And when you think about it, why does God allow the Elohim to continue to, the fallen Elohim to continue to bring their evil upon the world? Well, Paul, I think, answers it in Ephesians chapter two, verse seven. He says, all this is happening in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. That all this is happening so that in the coming ages, the real virus can be extinguished. All this pain, this toxicity now is so that the real virus has no place in the coming ages. That somehow this beings of free choice, free will, right now, you know, we have to have rules because rules are for those who have an undeveloped and confused moral compass. And so rules kind of keep evil at bay somewhat, but rules will really not work against the real virus of evil with beings that have free will until beings of free will don't want evil. Just reject it, because, not because of rules, but because I, I, only God is trusted. The independence of God is death. Independence of God is misery, chaos, darkness. And dependence upon God is light and steadfast love and kindness and goodness and grace. And that's just, that very evil just has no, it has no weight. 
God's allowing this because in the coming ages, he wants to fight the real virus. And so he says in chapter three, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, through those who are truly the body of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, catch this, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, to the Elohim, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is playing this long view. And he's, so that all the Elohim come to realize that evil is death. So that all the human beings come to realize that evil is death. And here's how evil always is tempting in our lives. It's what the serpent said to Eve. God can't be trusted, especially in the things you don't understand. You don't understand why he put this tree here? I'll tell you why. Because he doesn't want you to become like him. He wants to keep you down. You can't trust his will. She was convinced. He was convinced. And so they took and they ate. They took matters into their own hands because they couldn't trust that God was trustworthy in the things they didn't understand. That's why when Jesus, the true son of man, the true son of God comes and he's praying that night he's arrested to be crucified, it says he prayed three times to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Because Jesus knew that's the only will that's ultimately my good and my grace and my steadfast love and, my, and, my, and all the things that I want in life. That's always where the battle is. That's always where evil gets in the window, gets in the door. Can I trust God with the things that I don't understand? Can I trust God with the things that I think could go wrong? Can I trust God with the things that are unpredictable but I worry about? Can I trust God with this uncertain time in my life? Can I trust God with this bad news? Can I trust God with this bad relationship? Or do I have to take matters into my own hands. That's where the fallen Elohim get in and bring their evil into our lives. That's why Mary's last words to Gabriel, the angel, were these in verse 38. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know if you can say that. I don't know if you want to say that. I don't know if I can say that. I am the servant of the true and living God, the one who's the creator of the entire universe and the giver of all life. Let it be done to me according to his will. Let's pray. God, we pray what Mary prayed. I want to be, I want to want to be at least a servant of the true Lord, the true God, Let it be done to me according to always your goodwill, even if I can't understand what's happening and why it's happening. Even if the things that I want to happen aren't happening right now. Even if the things I don't want to happen seem to be happening. I am your servant and your will ultimately is the best will for my life. Amen.